morning, everybody. Um, we are continuing our sermon series, Clear and Present Danger, this morning. And today we're considering social media. Um, well, social media. Um, we had mobile phones from um, the 1980s. And the early 1990s saw the widespread adoption of mobile phones so that almost everyone had one by 2001. Uh, and that first decade of the 21st century saw the mass adoption of the next level of the technological device, the, the smartphone, um, which essentially was a mobile phone combined with a small personal mobile computer. First it was the BlackBerry, you may remember. Uh, then it was the iPhone introduced in 2007, with Android systems appearing towards the end of 2008. By the end of the decade, if somebody had a mobile phone, and pretty much everybody did, then their mobile phone was a smartphone. Well, another 21st century development um, has been the rise of social media. And by social media, this isn't a, this isn't a technical definition, but by social media, I guess I mean those, those interactive web-based applications that allow people to log in, post and control their own content, and interact with other users. Uh, a place on the computer where you can put your own stuff and talk to people. That sort of thing. And the first blogging sites came into being in um, uh, about 1999 and created something of a sensation, followed by MySpace in the early 2000s, uh, and then Facebook in 2006. And of course, in technological terms, we're talking about ancient history here. Because today, Facebook has almost 2 billion users. WhatsApp, 1.2 billion. YouTube, 1 billion. Instagram, 600 million. Twitter, 319 million. Snapchat, 300 million. Pinterest, 150 million. And LinkedIn has 100 million active users. So then, by 2010, we had something brand new to contend with in our lives. We had social media combined with the smartphone. Now we could contact everybody, everywhere, all of the time. Well, why is this a clear and present danger? Well, in a nutshell, the danger that I'm particularly concerned about is, is actually a, a danger facing our teenagers. Uh, and that's because um, if you're a teenager today, then you're the first teenagers in history to have to negotiate social media on a smartphone platform. Um, and it would seem to me, I guess, uh, as, as an adult, that that often our teenagers are unaccompanied on this journey and that there may be severe costs to them. And uh, with that in mind, I'm going to invite up Julie to talk to us further. I felt in particular I needed help with this particular topic. I'm, um, I'm not an expert on social media. In fact, I don't use social media. I was a very late adopter of the mobile phone. I uh, got my first one in 2003 and I took to it like a cat to water. <laughs> so here's Julie. She knows what she's talking about. And I'll let her say a few words about her areas of specialty. Thank you, Julie. Good morning, everyone. Is that okay with the mic? 
I have to say, technologically, I am not great, and the, most, the thing I'm most nervous about this morning is wearing this microphone on my ear, but that seems to be working, so that's the worst bit over and done with. So, why am I speaking this morning? I'm certainly not an expert on this subject, but I am the mother of three children who are aged 16 and 13 and 8, and so this topic is something that I think about and wrestle with um, probably on a daily basis. Um, I'm also a social worker and a counsellor and currently I work with adolescents aged or, and ad young adults aged from 15 to 25 who've been diagnosed with cancer. And this is the same age group that I started my career with um, as a social worker back in 1994 when I worked with young people who were placed in out-of-home care because they couldn't live with their families. So it puts me in a bit of a unique uh, position to compare what young people were like back then before the invention of smartphones and social media and what they're like now and what they're having to contend with. So as Stephen's already outlined, smartphones and social media have become a significant part of our lives in the last decade. And I want to start by saying a little bit about smartphones. Could I have the first slide up? This is a card that I bought for Phil a few years ago. I'm just going to read it to you. It's called The Instrument of Wonder. Unfortunately, it's so small, I'm going to have to turn my back to you to read it to you. So, phone. Look at me, O oh human person. Am I not the answer to your every waking dream? Person. A marvel though you are, you cannot give me friendship, love and passion. You cannot offer true contentment like a living, breathing soul. Phone. But does that soul have 97 functions and a megapixel camera such as mine? Person. Alas, it's true. No human soul can match your glory. O oh, instrument of wonder, how I love you. I want you with such passion. Please be mine. <laughs> For those who might be wondering, I got my first my mobile phone um, also in 2003. I was pregnant with Elijah and we thought it might be good if I could contact Phil when I went into labour. And I had some kind of a flip phone for the next decade until uh, for my 40th birthday, Phil insisted on giving me an instrument of wonder. And I've got to say, I took to it like a duck to water and I've been using it on a daily basis ever since. So that's my confession. But so when I was a parent of young children, I didn't have a phone. I couldn't photograph or video their antics, whether they were adorable or otherwise. And I've really watched with interest as smartphones have changed the face of parenting with young children. Um, if your days are really long and you're at home, you can connect with other parents via social media and you can look for advice on the net. You can also be on your smartphone while you're watching your children. So you can go to the playground and not have to feel bored. You can be staring at your hand while your children are on the swings, for good or for ill. To give a small example of the impact of smartphones and social media from my work, when I go into a counselling session with a young person now, They'll usually have their phone sitting next to them on the couch. They might well receive text messages or calls during the session and they might at times choose to take those calls. They generally don't surf the net during my sessions but <laughs> um, they may well document their cancer journey on Facebook or via a blog and they might use social media to fundraise for cancer support organisations. So one in four people worldwide today use social media. I'm just going to ask you to stick your hands up. Who in the congregation uses social media? Just keep them up for a minute. Look around. 
I'd say pretty nearly everybody. There's a few Luddites out there still, but most of you do. Put your hand up if you've already used social media this morning. Come on higher so we can see. (laughs) Catalogue of shame, people. (laughs) Now I'd like to know, has anybody used it in the service so far? (laughs) If they have, they're not going to (laughs) tell. All right. So social media is ostensibly about connecting and humans have not changed in this respect. We want to have good relationships with other people. And young people in particular are especially motivated to connect with their peers. Developmentally, adolescents and young adulthood are a time of immense concern about relationships with others. And this is normal and it's appropriate. And social media sites facilitate certain forms of connection with other people. But what kind and what quality of connection is it? There are clearly pros and cons to these new ways of connecting. Something it took me quite a while to work out is that social media is run by money-making companies. I still remember my sister-in-law first sending me an invite to connect on Facebook. And I thought, wow, what an interesting thing. It actually took me months to accept her invitation. It was very confusing to me what this Facebook thing was. But I didn't think to myself, this is an invitation from a company who are going to access many things about me. I just thought of it as a way to connect with people. So social media is not a social service and it's easy to lose sight of this. Could I have the next slide? Yesterday, while I was just finalising my sermon notes, Facebook kindly sent me this message and I'll just again read it aloud. It says, a lot has happened on Facebook since you last logged in. I've been too busy preparing this sermon on social media. Here are some notifications you've missed from your friends. 100 messages, Uh uh-oh. One event invite, one group invite and six new notifications. Go to Facebook. After I, after I saw this one yesterday, I actually finally worked out how to get myself unsubscribed from this. But when I have a few days away from Facebook, it gets worried, it gets anxious, and it sends me reminders of all the things I'm missing out on by not logging back into it. New technology, such as what we're talking about today, creates new behaviours. Some of you might have seen the photo essay on Facebook by Eric Pickersgill called Removed. What Eric did was he took photos of people using their devices, but he removed the devices before taking the photo. But he was recreating scenes that he was seeing. One of the most powerful for me is an image of himself and his wife in their bed with their backs to each other, both looking at their mobile phones. Next slide, please. Here's another one. So common scene probably for many of us in our houses. Mum and child on the sofa, each looking at something. So together, but maybe not really together. And Eric Pickersgill said this about the way we use phones. This phantom limb is used as a way of signalling busyness and unapproachability to strangers, while existing as an addictive force that promotes the splitting of attention between those who are physically with you and those who are not. So it's quite possible, perhaps as in this image, to be connecting with someone on the other side of the globe while not really with the people 
who are in our family or in the same room with us. So we sense there's a problem, but there's a lag in research to show exactly what's happening. But there have been studies recently that have raised serious concerns about possible detrimental effects of social media on young people's mental health and emotional well-being. A lot of what I'm about to present to you comes from a report released just last week by the Royal Society for Public Health in the United Kingdom. This report, titled Status of Mind, examines the positive and negative effects of social media on young people's health and well-being. Next slide, please. So I'm just going to pick out some key points and some of you might like to look further into this later. Reported rates of anxiety and depression have risen 70% amongst young people in the last 25 years. And even if we allow for the fact that there probably is more reporting because there's more open discussion of these issues in society, that is still a significant and really concerning increase. Heavy users of social media, so those who spend two or more hours a day on social networking sites, probably a lot more common than we wish to acknowledge, um, are more likely to report having poor mental health. And young people say that social media platforms make their feelings of anxiety worse. To quote again from the report, the unrealistic expectations set by social media may leave young people with feelings of self-consciousness, low self-esteem and the pursuit of perfectionism which can manifest as anxiety disorders. Use of social media particularly operating more than one social media account simultaneously, has also been shown to be linked with symptoms of social anxiety. It's not hard for any of us to think of the ways that social media can affect how we feel about ourselves, whether we're young people or adults. When you look at a highlight reel of somebody else's life containing the high points, the glamorous points, the best bits, it's easy to come away feeling a little bit small and negative about your own life. And although a part of us knows that it's not the full truth, a part of us forgets that when we're looking at highlight reels of other people's life. The term compare and despair has been coined and I think that that quite captures what it can feel like to look at other people's happy family snaps, great holidays, beautiful new clothes or new cars um, and then think about what our own life looks like. Going on, sleep is also affected by social media use. Increased social media use is associated with poor sleep and there's a close link between how we sleep and our mental health. Some young people wake through the night to check their phones because they have FOMO. Any of the adults here know what FOMO is? Louise? Yeah, fear of missing out. So when you get used to being in constant contact, you start to worry, what's going to happen overnight? And uh, we ask our kids not to have their phones in their room overnight, and I often will have a little sticky beak on Pieta's phone, and I think she's not here, thankfully, this morning, <laughs> when, in the morning when it's fully charged. And I see that lots of things have happened overnight. There are lots of messages. Thankfully, she's not that afraid of missing out on them that I think she's getting up to check. But all the same, there's a fear. What, what's happening that I'm disconnected from? Three body image concerns. Social media, by virtue of its nature, emphasises appearance 
and we can enhance and edit photos and make things look much better than they really are. A colleague of mine um, just the other week was asked to take a snap of a parent walking to a local school with their two children. Um, she took great pains to emphasise to him that she had 15,000 followers on Instagram and that photo then went up into the West Australian. When I saw the photo, I said to my colleague, wow, the colours, it looks fantastic. And he said, I think she's enhanced it. Even for me, it took a minute to go, no, real life actually isn't that beautiful. It's not that colourful. And when I had a look later at her feed, there were a whole lot of other happy images of parenting and I had a little pang. My home life doesn't look like that. It's hard for us to remember that these things are edited. And just to go back to body image, when I was a teenager, I used to pore over Dolly magazine and look at the models and look at the clothes and I used to love it. But then I put it down and maybe my friend borrowed the magazine and there wasn't another one out for a month. So perhaps I felt maybe I didn't measure up on that one day a year, one day a month pouring over Dolly, but then I put it away for the rest of the month. Young people these days are seeing hundreds if not thousands of images a week of edited, photoshopped images. What's that doing to their view of what we can and should look like? And I sometimes wonder for my clients who have cancer, who may not have their hair or their eyebrows or who may have had to have a limb amputated, what the heightened effect of these images that they also are seeing every day is for their self-esteem. Not to go on for too much longer, um, other negative effects of social media include cyberbullying, and seven in 10 young people say that they've experienced it. And it means once upon a time, you might have been bullied at school, but you could go home and forget about it. And during school holidays, maybe have a break from it. These days, that bullying can follow you into your own bedroom and it can feel like there's no escape. Time magazine last year did a special um, article on this uh, area. And this is a quote from the director of Cornell's research program on self-injury and recovery. She said, young people are in a cauldron of stimulus they can't get away from or don't want to get away from or don't know how to get away from. So we have this constant hyper-connectedness and overexposure to other people's lives and thoughts and opinions of us. What are some of the benefits? It's not all doom and gloom. Um, just this week in the West Australian adjunct professor Rob Donovan from the University of Western Australia said, social media has brought together people who otherwise would not be connected, contributing to a sense of belonging. And people actually do use social media to create connection that then goes into the real world. Um, they might connect around a special interest and then arrange to get together. So it facilitates connections um, for people that can be really positive. Older people who are at home and might be housebound can really use those connections to decrease their sense of loneliness. We're able to connect and build relationships and gain health information and express oneself using social media. And in any case, social media is not going to go away. We need to capitalise on the benefits and be smart about the dangers. For the adults in the room, I would ask you and I ask myself... What am I modelling? What are we modelling to our children? How much time every day do we spend in this position, 
instead of looking into the faces of the people in our family and our world. Next slide, please. I've just put this slide up because I just want to uh, remind us also that these issues can actually be really distressing. And so um, if any of you recognise that you need help with your social media use or support around bullying or anything else that you've heard, I really encourage you to talk with parents or a friend or a counsellor or Headspace. Um, and here are some numbers of services that are available 24-7 for young people. I'm going to hand back to Stephen now. Thank you. Uh, well, how do we think theologically about these kinds of things? Um, well, I've um, decided I thought I might use three words as um, crystallization points for, for thinking theologically about the things that, that Julie has raised. And my three words, they all begin with B. And my three words are boundaries, boasting, and blessing. So let's think about, um, let's think theologically uh, using those three words. Firstly, firstly boundaries. Um, God has made a universe with boundaries. Uh, indeed, the first chapter of the Bible is all about the creation of boundaries. Why? Well, God made boundaries in order that beauty, diversity, and order could thrive, and so that randomness and chaos wouldn't destroy. Um, God made night and day, land, sea, and sky, seasons of the year, boundaries to time and boundaries to space, boundaries that we do really well to respect. There is a time to work and a time to rest. There is a place to build and there is a time to tear down. And the first chapter of the Bible ends with the creation of a boundary that cannot be seen. It's a boundary into a holiday. It's the seventh day, the Sabbath, holy and different to the other six days by way of divine decision. And it's received as a blessing by faith. In other words, you receive the blessing of the Sabbath by believing what God has to say about it. Sometimes we uh, ignore or break through boundaries. Uh, for example, we have broken the ties of gravity and we've taken to the air. And at this moment in time, there is somewhere between half a million and a million people flying up in the sky. And we've also not just broken the tie of gravity and made it into the atmosphere and now into the air, but uh, um, the space travel is now in its second half century. However, whenever you break a boundary, you need to put another boundary in place. You can't go beyond 12,000 feet without the self-imposed boundary of a pressurized cabin. Otherwise, you just fall unconscious. So you need to establish new boundaries if you break old ones. And likewise, you can't ignore the Sabbath, at least not for very long. You, you may or may not actually have Sunday or Saturday off, but um, you can't, human beings cannot work seven days a week, week after week after week, without breaking down. Good boundaries help us to survive and to thrive. Good walls, I'm given to understand, make good neighbors. And God is the source of all wisdom. 
Some years ago, somebody shared with me a lesson which has helped me a great deal, and it's a lesson about boundaries, and I was really blessed by it. And that person, and I've forgotten actually who it was, they said to me, Stephen, most people write down their complaints and criticisms, but they give their praise and encouragement verbally face to face. Stephen, do the opposite. And it's actually really good advice. Um, When there are criticisms or complaints or offenses to be discussed, give them face to face. If you can't do that, then you need to work out why you can't do that. But when there is praise or thanksgiving or encouragement to be given, write it down. Perhaps send them an email or a letter or, or, or send them a card. Twice in the New Testament, we hear a New Testament author say, I have much to write to you, but actually I do not want to use um, pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and then we will talk face to face. So one of the things that as adults we we need to take on board and we need to teach this to our children and to our teenagers is, is that there is a time for letters and there is a time for memos and there's a time for a text But there's also a time for face-to-face. And uh, um, there are some conversations which you has to be face-to-face. You can't can't dump your boyfriend by text. Um, (laughs) That's debatable, is it, Phil? Okay. (laughs) The problem with social media, of course, is that it is a medium itself, which respects no boundaries. Um, It doesn't respect boundaries. Of course, it does have boundaries. Social media generally leaves alone those people who don't have smartphones or computers. But as for the rest of us, uh, social media is often merciless in how invasive it is. Um, So whether we're talking about social media or just the use of technology, let's consider carefully boundaries. uh, if, if you're a boss and you're sending a message to employees, please do so in work hours and not outside of work hours unless it is unavoidable. Um, uh, if, you're, if you're a boss of a corporation or something, it's not appropriate for you to send messages to your employees at 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, uh, whether you're talking about a, a boss-employee relationship or just friends or whatever, Um, I think a really good basic thing is don't send a person a text at 10 o'clock at night or at 6 a.m. in the morning unless that person needs to know what you are telling them at 10 o'clock at night or 6 o'clock in the morning. Um, uh, A while ago, I moved my phone um, at night from my bedside table to the kitchen because work colleagues in the diocese were sending me texts at 6 o'clock in the morning, and I don't mind being texted at 6 o'clock in the morning if I need to know that at 6 o'clock in the morning. But the things they were telling me were not things I needed to know at 6 o'clock in the morning. Um, Now, um, of course, some of you have positions of responsibility where you people need to get hold of you 24-7, and that's that's absolutely fine. But in general... A general rule of thumb is that work tools do not belong in the bedroom. Uh, So um, the bedroom is not, um, and in fact, um, if you're a student, most of us, when we were students, or if we're students, study in our bedrooms, but in actual fact, that's not a good place to study. So parents, if you can create a study center for your kids elsewhere in the house, not in their bedrooms, that's a good thing 
to do because work tools don't belong in the bedroom. Mobile phones should charge overnight somewhere else, not in the bedroom. Um, phones, computers, and chainsaws don't belong in the bedroom. Phones at the dinner table. It's mums and dads, that's your decision, but you know, I think a good rule of thumb, and particularly at restaurants, I, I kind of feel a bit amazed where I see groups of people at a table at a restaurant and they're actually all interacting with their phones. Um, uh, again, you, you work out the boundaries that work for you, but you know, I would think that a good basic one is no mobile phone at the dining table when you're together, together at night as a family. Um, you work it out, whatever works for you, but remember that without boundaries, there will be chaos and randomness, which will destroy life. So that's the first B word, boundaries. The second B word is boasting. The Bible condemns boasting, although, uh, like gossiping, it is something that we are all guilty of and something that can be difficult to spot until we're up to our neck in it. Um, boasting is advertising to others our achievements, our possessions, our acquisitions, our abilities, or our personal characteristics. Boasting is speaking in praise of ourselves. It is self-promotion. Generally, actually what drives boasting is insecurity. What drives boasting is actually not feeling good about myself and wanting to feel good about myself. And so boasting about this achievement or, or, or the other thing. But actually, boasting is a twofold trap. Firstly, we boast in order to feel better about ourselves, but actually we do that at the expense of others. It's a transaction. We do it at the expense of people who are listening to us. It is an unloving thing to do with respect to our neighbor or friend. We feel better about ourselves temporarily, but they feel worse about themselves. That's one reason why it's a trap. Secondly, it is a trap because um, in our boasting, we reaffirm to ourselves that the praise we desire is the praise of people rather than of God. And uh, the comparison that works, we say to ourselves, is the comparison with others rather than with Jesus. And so we succumb to an addiction, an addiction to the opinion of others in our boasting. And in our surrender to that addiction, our addiction gets worse. The antidote is, of course, humility. And a humility that comes from a particular form of contentment. Not just being content with what we have that we have enough, but contentment with who God has chosen us to be, which is a unique challenge because we're all made differently. Uh, but are we content with who God sovereignly chose to make us to be? Because there are some wonderful things about each of us and there are some less wonderful things about each of us and there are some silly things about each of us. Can I be content to be who God made me to be, content with who I am in his eyes. Well, when it comes to boasting, social media anticipates, expects, and encourages rampant boasting. In much the same way that a shopping mall anticipates, expects, and creates rampant covetousness. But God is calling us to be different. 
and to be different indeed on social media as much as anywhere else. And this means to be wise and to avoid boasting. That's my second B word, boundaries, boasting. My third B word is blessing. Because social media is an extremely powerful tool. Um, And philosophically, we recognize that the more powerful a tool, the more destructive it is when we get it wrong. And I remember somebody once describing the the chainsaw as the most powerful tool that doesn't need a license. Um, Extremely destructive when we get it wrong. Um, And we often get it wrong initially. Um, Nuclear energy has killed hundreds of thousands of people particularly early on when we got it wrong, and we consider Nagasaki and Hiroshima and Chernobyl and Fukushima. Nuclear energy has killed hundreds of thousands of people, but it has also saved the lives of millions or tens of millions of people in a number of different ways, but especially through nuclear medicine. When it comes to new technologies, we often experience them as curse, actually, before we experience them as blessing, before we understand what boundaries to put in place. In its first 50 years of existence, the aeroplane undoubtedly killed more people than it saved. But now the aeroplane, in its next 60 years, has, has been more blessing than curse. Um, thinking of social media as a tool, as a new technology, we can receive it as a great blessing, Because, as Julie said, it does help us to communicate with other human beings. Um, Especially um, uh, without reference to distance. People who might be difficult to contact if not for social media. It allows us to keep in touch with old friends. It allows us to create special interest groups without reference to location. It allows us to to share specialist knowledge easily and to create community awareness almost instantly of of social, political, or environmental concerns. And social media allows us to be creative and to have one's creativity recognized and affirmed and received. In the Bible, um, there are two stories about God giving language. The first story is the story of the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. And it's a story about New technology. Um, Let us uh, build a city. And they had new technology, bricks rather than stone, and mortar um, made of tar. And it's all about boasting. Let us make a name for ourselves and build a tower that will stretch up to heaven, and this city will prevent us from being scattered. We won't have to obey God who wants us to fill the earth and subdue it. No, we'll just all stick together. Um, And... um, God came down and he curses them with language. The diversity of language is a curse. Um, Indeed, so that they have to part company um, and abandon the tower and fill the earth. Um, uh, The second story about God giving language is, of course, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes audibly and visibly upon the disciples of Christ. And they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to praise God in other languages as the Spirit enabled. And um, on that day, on the day of Pentecost, there were people in Jerusalem from every single country and nation in the known world. And every single one of them heard God being praised in his or her own language. And it was technically possible on the basis of that day for within a few weeks every nation on earth or every nation in the known world at that time to have 
heard about Jesus um, through this gift, the gift of languages. The news about Jesus did indeed spread like wildfire, like a bushfire. Well, conversation can be cursed and conversation can be blessed, but the ability to communicate is the gift of God. Um, Social media is a world that didn't exist 20 years ago and it is extraordinarily powerful. It can be a curse, but it can also be a blessing. It should not surprise us that social media has the power to kill, uh, leading indeed to many people, in fact, around the world, leading to to people um, uh, uh, contemplating or indeed committing suicide. It should not also surprise us to realize that social media can save lives, perhaps especially through raising awareness and broadcasting news. Uh, It is ours, as much as it is anybody's, to inhabit and use as a place where God can be praised, where the knowledge of Jesus can be spread, and where we can bless indeed our neighbors and bless indeed our enemies. I hope you found this uh, discussion useful. Uh, The Lord be with you.